Hello, and welcome to another Ecopunk Salon, recorded live in front of an automated audience. We uh, really try to bring a group of people together on a weekly basis to try to wrap our heads around some of the big trends in society, in technology, in business, and in politics. And today's topic is actually one that ironically, I think, spans all of it. That while we're not talking about technology per se, I think we're talking about a culture that might be fueled by technology, that might be exaggerated by technology, or who knows, could even be countered by technology. And what I'm really talking about is what I've increasingly started to call the pandemic of rudeness. And I call it a pandemic because this rudeness does seem to be worldwide. It's not limited to any particular jurisdiction. But I also use the word pandemic because I kind of suspect that the rudeness and public displays of outrage we're seeing are symptoms of a larger mental health crisis. And so that's where I don't want to immediately dismiss it as just a random sample of jerks but instead suggests that maybe there's a larger trend, a larger development that we need to dig into. Now, normally we start our salons off by inviting someone to offer a provocation, but I kind of feel today that we're foregoing the provocation because the provocation itself is just sort of acknowledging the rudeness in our world. But Michael, I wouldn't mind if, if you would sort of start us off only because today's salon kind of came from an interaction you and I had at another event where you were talking about some interesting research that you were engaged in or came across that kind of spoke to how this this trend in rudeness isn't just inconvenient. It isn't just something that we're seeing anecdotally, but it's also actually having to start having an impact on the labor force, on the broader economics. So if you might help us set the stage or set the context of where this kind of pandemic of rudeness, for lack of a better phrase, is starting to develop or starting to fester. Sure thing, Jesse. And I, I feel like I should apologize because I probably should have interrupted you there so I could be more rude. <laughs> um, the, the discussion that Jesse and I were, were talking about, I, I do a lot of work with retailers, people who run supermarkets, people who run convenience stores. And you, anyone who is shopping, anyone who goes outside these days notices that any store you go to has a big sign that says now hiring because they cannot find people. Well, some of these retailers were saying one of the problems they've been encountering since the pandemic is that shoppers have gotten unbelievably rude in a lot of stores. And I, I feel sad saying this. A big problem that folks face with their staffers is the job can be unsafe that um, there are stores that because they have cash, they have merchandise, they get robbed. And sometimes the customer interaction is violent. And they said that is becoming less of a problem, if you can believe it. There is the shoplifting issue that is seemingly out of control at the moment. But they said it's just the general rudeness. People walking into stores and yelling at a clerk at a convenience counter. And it's like, what are you expecting from a clerk at a convenience counter? They're there basically to take your money for the gasoline you bought or sell you some cigarettes or Coke or whatever it might be. And they said it's almost, to use Jesse's phrase, it's a pandemic of rudeness. Um, there's even, and Jesse, I think this came up in our conversation in Europe. There are a number of companies who have started giving their employees shirts that say, be kind to me. I'm just a person. 
which when you think of the mere fact that we have to say that is incredible. And, and not to be rude, because I will pass this microphone on in a second. I, I also mentioned to Jesse recently, there was an article in the New York Times probably about a week ago. And if you were looking for a place on this planet where you'd think rudeness is rampant, it would be the subway system in New York City. If you have never been on the New York City subways, this is not like the height of humanity. It is, it is a place where millions of people gather every day and it works I mean, more people ride the subway than live in most cities, but it works because there are these unwritten rules of etiquette. Things like when you sit down, don't mansplain as it's called, don't put your bags on an empty seat. And what the New York Times was documenting is since the pandemic and ridership has returned, people seem to have forgotten these unwritten rules and there is a rudeness on the subway that is actually impeding the normal operation. I mean, if you've ever lived in New York, I happen to live near Washington, D.C. We have a subway system, same unwritten rules. One of the most important rules on a subway is you let people get off the train first, and then there are spaces to get on the train. And they said, this is breaking down. People are now banging into each other because I got to get on the train. And damn it, if you want to get off, I'm going to. But you can't get on until they get off. And But Michael, that's all the stupid tourists who don't know how it's done. We New Yorker <laughs> have this down. And I will tell you, Jan, it's a great point, because living near Washington, D.C., we always wanted big signs for the tourists, because the, the tourists, if you ever come to Washington, D.C., we have the metro system. And every time a tourist gets on a train, it's a moment. And it's almost, they have to stop in the doorway and take in that, oh, my God, I'm on a train while I'm just trying to get to work. Um, tourists also don't know that you're supposed to stand on the right and walk on the left on our escalators. But there are all these unwritten rules of society that, you know, and again, Jesse, I'm going to go to your point. I, I like to I'm a bike rider. And I have noticed since the pandemic, apparently stop signs no longer matter. And if you're on a bike. People in cars have clearly done the calculus and figured out my car hitting that guy. Well, I'm not going to get hurt. I may dent my car a little, but he's in big trouble. And I am with you, Jesse. I think we are seeing it happen. Um, I'm glad I don't have any children in school at the moment, because what you read about what goes on with social media and teenagers is frightening. So is it these devices that are doing it to us? Or is it that we all, in three years of pandemic, forgot how to live in a community? But well, I'm with and, you. I think there's a pandemic of rudeness. And, and we've got a couple of hands up. So this is where I'll sort of mention to folks we do make use of the Zoom feature. But I think it's interesting, Michael, that the subtext of what you're describing is a renegotiation of social norms. Mm -hmm. And while there are existing social norms that we might expect to maintain, Perhaps there is a, a new emergence of social norms that causes us to think rudeness. And Chris, this is where I kind of want to prepare you at some point to bring in your experiences in Japan, because you visit Japan quite frequently. And I think this notion of rudeness and civility, right, is different depending upon which culture we're in. But with that said, Jan, you've got your hand up and Scott, you're right after. So please join in. Yeah, so first of all, I want to build on, uh, Michael, what you said with regards to the rudeness in shops or in retail spaces. Uh, Jesse and I had a meeting yesterday with a managing director from Verizon, right? Uh, US's uh, largest mobile phone provider, uh, sorry, cell phone coverage uh, provider, network provider. 
And you know what happens in call centers is even worse, where everything is anonymous, right? And if you put yourself into the shoes of the poor call center individual who's trying to help, what they have to listen to uh, due to none of their own doing is, is just outrageous, right? So I'm fully on board with you on this. Um, since, you know, or, or, although Jesse said we don't do provocations anymore, I still want to do, want to offer one though today because my hypothesis would be that the pandemic of rudeness is coming to an end and it's going to be over soon. And here is, uh, you know, where I found my hypothesis on. Um, it's basically OpenAI, Sam Altman, and uh, what has been happening there in the last couple of days. As of this morning, the latest numbers claim that apparently 500 employees of OpenAI want to change payroll over to Microsoft. That's 500 out of 700 some uh, employees that OpenAI has. Still, nobody knows what really happened. What was it that the board did not like about Sam Altman? But he seems to be the nice guy. And two thirds of OpenAI's employees want to follow the nice guy wherever he is going next, right? Which is a complete shift of the paradigm in Silicon Valley, where usually the guy who brings the sink to the board meeting and drops it on the floor is who gets hails, right? Here it is the nice one. And that gives me hope actually with regards to values and uh, rudeness. It is an interesting kind of metric in terms of the loyalty that that kind of behavior would engender. Scott, you've been very polite in being patient with raising your hand. So please join the discussion. Yeah, well, I'm a Canadian, so it's stereotypical, right? So politeness. I mean, I, I just listening to the to all the comments so far, for me, what I've seen observing things, particularly north of the border, which is a very different space, but is this conflation or sort of this belief that or, or yeah rudeness equals rights rudeness equals first amendment rights right the ability to say whatever the fuck you want comes from the fact that you are allowed to and after seeing someone reach the highest office in the u.s with an attitude like that there's certain there's somewhat of a i don't think we can lay the blame at the feet of like social media or anything like that, that exclusively i think when you have role models and it seems, and you know, it seems there are quite a few of them, you know, the role models who sit, who take rudeness as um, the way to get anything done in the halls of power, right? Then you suddenly have license for anybody to behave that way because they suddenly believe, well, if so-and-so can do it, if so-and-so can do it and achieve what they've achieved, then I can do it. And who cares if you can't handle who I am? It seems to be this sense. If you can't handle what I'm saying, then it, the problem is with you, not with me. You are the issue. You're the snowflake. You're the one who can't handle it. You're not tough enough. And so I'm just exercising my rights to say whatever I want and ask for what I want. If you can't hack it, it's like if you can't handle the, the heat, get out of the fire type stuff. That seems to be the attitude. And, and it kind of evokes an interesting paradox is rudeness an expression of authenticity versus is kindness an expression of vulnerability. I disagree with so both. That's, that's a great, but that's a great point. Like, you know, like if you're being authentic and you're saying what's true, then, you know, is, is rudeness simply the interpretation of the other person based on their moral code and their standards. And if you hold a different one, what is rude to one may not be rude to another. 
Like, is, is it relative or is it universal? Mm -hmm. Right. And then think that's one of the big arguments in culture right now. Is there any sort of, is everything relative or is there a moral universalism? Well, and we need to, 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 and to connect it to Michael's point is can social norms be relative or do social norms have to be universal? Andrea, please jump in. Um, kind of like a tangent. It's a lot of people have seemed very self-centered and selfish. So to the point you were making, Scott, it's like, you know, if you can't take what I'm saying, you know, it's your problem. Everybody just thinks they're the center of their own universe and that they can do whatever they want, take it or leave it. My neighborhood, they just built a little daycare and the moms and nannies, you know, it's up your side. So everybody's pretty entitled and, you know, high on themselves. So they park their strollers on the sidewalk. They drop the kids off. They stand there and literally at three times a day, you can't walk down the sidewalk because they're there and they feel entitled not to move out of your way. And it's kind of like, okay, <laughs> it's not a huge inconvenience to cross the street, but it is kind of a selfishness that I think is endemic. And that's contributing to this rudeness that we're talking about. Well, and it also goes back to the, the kind of cliche of the New York subway and the extent to which you need both these types of social norms, but we're also talking about shared infrastructure. Right. A sidewalk is a shared infrastructure. And I think increasingly we're seeing a tension between, you know, what used to be called the tragedy of the commons, where it's as if there's this lowest common denominator because we're losing that basic level of civility. And the other thought, Scott, that you kind of uh, brought up was even just swearing. Like I remember when saying fuck or shit was considered rude. Versus now, to your point, we've gotten into a kind of relativity that it it, it speaks to authenticity. It speaks to that level of framing. Um, Sharita, you're not by chance raising your hand because you wanted to jump into this conversation, in which case I welcome you to do so. But David, I wanted to throw to you only because Andrea's description of the sidewalks kind of uh, uh, made me think of a word you often used, which was sort of forbearance, right? Or allowing people to have the room when you're walking on the street. And similarly, we often throw to you, David, when it gets into healthcare stuff. And the one thing we haven't talked about yet, but that I think is relevant, is the harassment of healthcare staff. And how increasingly the signs that, you know, Michael was talking about in terms of in corner stores saying, be kind, Increasingly, we're seeing that in, in emergency departments. We're seeing that in hospitals, in waiting rooms. Do you want to comment, David, uh, both in general of the culture that we're talking about, but also the way in which it's manifesting in healthcare settings and whether you think that's connected to this larger culture vis-a-vis -vis customer service or vis-a-vis -vis the selfishness and, and narcissism that Andrea was highlighting? Well, I think it's all connected, isn't it? I think it's all connected. And um, I've been thinking about it as we've been talking, and I'm thinking on the one hand of hatred and the perm permissiveness for hatefulness and the divisiveness as a, as, a, as a strategy for social control and power seeking um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think about rudeness in terms of anxiety and um, you know what a, what a stressful time we are in with you know a pandemic and wars and disrupted political uh, circumstances and threats, so that people are and you know threatens of uh, threats of loss of in healthcare threats of loss of healthcare. Um, 
so you know the, there are these I'm still wondering if rudeness is a, a an expression of anxiety on the one hand uh, arising from the disruptiveness that we experience a friend called me the other day and asked me if if I'd heard of any um DSM-3 diagnostic system manuals for um, environmental related stress disorders and uh and there's another uh, contributor to this pandemic of anxiety. And on the other hand, the, this is straight out um, creation of uh, hatefulness um, on the part of um, you know, notable um, politicians and, um, and um, um, political actors of various, various stripes. So I think it's the same uh, in healthcare as it is everywhere else. Um, um, it, it may be that in, in healthcare people are more anxious than, you know, walking down the street, but I, I see, you know, rudeness in, you know, uh, kids that don't, uh, you know, will not let seniors walk abreast on the sidewalks. You run into gangs of people who in older times, in earlier times, would step aside and allow people to get through, and this these days they don't. Um, Anyway, I don't know how to construe that particular instance with this distinction between hatefulness on one side as a tactic and uh, an anxiety on another as a consequence of all the things that we're doing. Although I think it does uh, conveniently stitch together a, a few threads, which is if we're renegotiating social norms and we're deciding whether those social norms are arbitrary or universal, Scott's point about the rudeness and the tone set by our leaders very much correlates with hate also being normalized, right? Where people feel empowered, as Andrew was saying, to selfishly express their versions of hate. So this is where I'll note that Jan has his hand up and Scott and Jeanette uh, raised her hand. So that is our current speaking cue. And of course, Gunnar, welcome. Glad you could join us. So Jan, please. Continue the conversation. Yeah, first of first of Gunnar, uh, you show up twenty minutes late uh, to the salon on rudeness, which is fully on brand. So thank you very much for that contribution to our rudeness conversation today, Gunnar. This no. is great. Hey, no. hey, 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 hey! It was great, Gunnar. Really, no, you really have good. to be fair. You have to be fair. Yeah. If I click yeah. participate on your invitation. I get diverted to a different meeting and I've been waiting there for 20 minutes. Ah, <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay, so good. We, we, will, we, we, will, we, will, we will put this interview. The invitation promotes a Google button that is, and this is Already. kind of integrated into the, into the date. So yeah. uh, I've been waiting for 20 minutes. How we will, so, we will, we, we have we will this. We will solve this. We will solve this. Guna, thank you for uh, pointing this out. Um, to a couple of points that David made, uh, I wanted to briefly um, yeah, pose the question of whether termolo terminology or language might be uh, barriers or challenges here um, in our conversation. Um, um, and, and this was prompted to me by uh, David's uh, use of the word hate and hatred, right? Which reminded me of my daughter who started telling me at the age of five regularly, oh, dad, you ruined my day today, right? Then everyone these days uh, seems to have massive problems. I yesterday spoke with a 20-year-old woman who is studying at Brown, 
And she was seriously trying to tell me that she has a learning disability because she feels she is reading too slow. And I said, girl, I have news for you. You are in your second year at Brown. You do not have a learning disability, right? So my question is also on the, you know, with regards to Scott's point from earlier, um, um, you know, is it, is it language that keeps us uh, kind of caught here between feeling offended, right? Five years ago, I might have said to Jesse, hey, Jesse, I don't agree with you. Today, I might easily easier say, hey, Jesse, what you just said really, really offended me. You know, are we misinterpreting things or are we kind of uh, erring more on the on the stronger side when it comes to judging actions and statements? Well, and this fits perfectly with the social norms argument. Is our use of language universal or is increasingly our use of language very relativistic? And so this is where we've got Scott and then Jeanette and then Chris in the queue. So please, Scott. Yeah, I'd just like to go back to something David said as well. Uh, I think it was really insightful talking around anxiety um, and the, what people are feeling and experiencing in the time. Um, I made two points on that. I worked in retail a lot before I got into the, the real world. And, you know, I experienced a lot of really rude customers. But generally, if you connected with them, or ask them what was going on or talk to them a little bit, they would start to talk about their issues or their challenges or what they were facing. And they would instantly, the tone would shift. And so what I found is, is, is rudeness seems to be sort of the first order of relationship, but rudeness doesn't persist in most cases. Rudeness doesn't persist once you know, or once you connect with somebody, or once you listen to them or hear what they're saying or the anxiety they're going through. It's almost like that connection disarms the rudeness and so um, if, if there's a pandemic of rudeness, it's simply be, maybe because it's being brought to the surface, but I don't know if it's going deeper into relationships. Maybe it's just, there's more that's happening, you know, you know, at that interface between people. Or, or conversely, perhaps, you know, to your point, that rudeness was always there, but it was contained. And the containers that kept it in place were destroyed by the pandemic. And hence why we're now seeing it flow everywhere. Jeanette, please. I actually just want to build on Scott's building on David's point. Um, I, you know, I've been thinking for decades about why people, like sort of a theory of evil, right? Why people do terrible things. And that I keep coming, uh, I keep driving toward this idea that a lot of times it's just easier to do the bad thing doing the right thing requires so much more effort and i think david when he talked about anxiety you know i, I all i kept thinking about is you know the, in the last few years i think we've all felt a great drain on our energy you know and our stamina and so that ability perhaps to extend oneself to do the correct thing to do the considerate thing, to be kind, the resources may not be there in the same way. And I, and I, that's mm. why I thought what Scott brought up was so interesting because when we have a connection to someone, it is much easier. It doesn't require the same input of energy to be kind. Uh, it's a more natural kind of movement. But when we're talking about strangers, that's why when I, when Michael first started with the idea of local subway customs, I was thinking, well, you know, having lived in New York for a few years, you feel a kind of a natural solidarity, right? Like that's famous. New Yorkers, 
you know, they're all super rude, but at the same time, that there's kind of this feeling of we're in it together. And I, I think that underpins that sense of familiarity or connection or solidarity does make it easier to be kind. But when that starts to fray, then we see more of the rudeness. And so we got Chris and then Michael. I noticed you had your hand up. Go ahead, Chris. No, I mean, this is, Donat, this is what you're talking about, I think, and Scott, what you were saying too. And I think some of the, I've been sort of in an environment of, of late, I've done a lot of work with people helping to create, to create inclusive and diverse work environments. And one of the things, Scott, this is right on brand with what you were saying, is assume positive intent. So you're not being a jerk. Whatever you're doing, it does make sense to you. And I think sometimes, back to your point, Jeanette, we have like good and evil. What are you trying to accomplish? And I might say in the political sphere, are we trying to hear more voices or are we trying to stifle voices? And I think, I don't know if people are clear about what their intent is, but depending on what you're trying to do, your behaviors will be quite different in the face of any criticism. And can I pause there and then share a Japan transit example? Is that too much of a shift or is that okay? No, run with it. So this was the, I think this sort of shared system and the, um, Michael, to your point, right? The tourists don't know, like, what are you doing standing in front of an open door, right? Like what, but maybe you just didn't know the door was opening or you're being generous or whatever it is. So in, um, as in Tokyo, this is now, this is more than 20 years ago, Shinjuku station, one of the busiest stations on earth, the subways are particularly crowded. During rush hour, you have pain on the ground for two lineups. You can line up for this train or you can line up for the next train. And when the lineup for this train is full, people start the line, like it's full because there's paint on the ground and people are standing like this. And then when the train goes, the line for the next train sort of shuffles over and it happens again. And I think it's amazing to watch. And I think part of that is sort of the shared orientation of, we're trying to get as many people through the station as possible, right? Like don't, and I don't know if that's still happening. Maybe there's been an assault on um, public transit etiquette, <laughs> but that was fascinating. And everybody, everybody sort of gets it, right? So don't horn into that line. That line's full, move over here, line up, and then your turn will come, which is, it's just a shared frame and a shared set of norms. And maybe that's stuff that we're having to, expose or be more explicit about maybe michael I, I wanted to build on some of what jesse i'm sorry what david had talked about because i thought this notion of the anxiety and, and david um you know fortunately i don't think there's anyone on this call right now who lived through the great depression and world war ii which i have to imagine was a time of tremendous anxiety and i wonder if the same discussions were held then um, but as I listened, what occurred to me is, now, now, first of all, you have to understand, I have spent a large part of my career working with supermarket operators. And, and by the way, a great way to see the world is one supermarket at a time, because you, you see how locals live and customs. What I found so interesting during COVID, and everyone's going to remember this, the first couple months of COVID, supermarket clerks were heroes. The mere fact they got the store open, there was any food on the shelves, people were applauding supermarket clerks. And like a light switch, that changed. And, and again, retailers were telling me the people who were applauding a month ago are now screaming at our people because you don't have the same variety of you know 18,000 kinds of balsamic vinaigrette that you used to have. And they don't want to hear that the supply chain is having problems because what happened in China and how that has clogged the ports in Los Angeles and we're not getting our shipments. 
And, and that happened so fast. In addition, and, and David, this is why your comments struck me. I was working in Washington, D.C., one block from the White House on 9-11, which was a horrible day to be down there because, first of all, we could see the Pentagon burn and we had the sense of just the, the incredible vulnerability of that day. For about the next two weeks, life in Washington, D.C. was completely different. You'd ride the metro and people were helping each other. There were people having obvious mental anguish about being on a small metal tube underneath Washington, D.C. one week after the Pentagon had been blown up. And there was this tremendous feeling of community. And even it, it showed back to our political discussion, probably all of you, whether you're north of the border or in the U.S., remember all of Congress getting together on the steps of the Capitol, Democrats, Republicans, and singing God Bless America, a terrible song. They sang it badly, but it was all about community and togetherness and how fast that fell apart. So, so David, your point kind of hit me on that because it's possible. I mean, we've had a shared trauma for three years. We basically, we couldn't go to restaurants, movies, Disneyland. We, we couldn't do all the things we usually do. And is this a reaction? Would a um, would psychologists tell us that, that we are experiencing, we went through a trauma and now we are in the recovery and, and we're kind of learning how to do things again, whether it's standing on the right platform at a train station or, or you know, just all the unwritten rules of community and society. Although, I wish I had the insight to know. And David, I don't know if it's something that you can answer. I just found your comments to be. Um, I don't know if I can answer that question, Michael. But um, I, I guess, you know, I, I made some notes to myself uh, earlier about um, about uh, about uh, about COVID and uh, and, you know, and, and linking to Jeanette's comments about um, the effort and the, the economy of politeness, if, if you will, the social economy of politeness. And here in Toronto, in Canada, there's been some discussion about why is there such a spate of um, traffic uh, mishaps? People are banging into one another in their cars and bicycles. And somebody proposed that we are cognitively impaired as a result of long COVID uh, amongst the, mm. uh, the uh the population. And so I'm wondering if this extra effort that uh, Jeanette pointed to, to be polite, and uh, isn't compromised by literally the unavailability of the energy to muster that kind of response. But in the context of a really toxic environment that is purpose-built for political ends, in uh, both Canada, uh, which is following the American pathway, it seems, and certainly in 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 the United States. Well, and Argentina also just elected an Argentina and, of, of similar manner. So I, I think that is a really interesting kind of thread that stitches to this. And I'll acknowledge Jan has his hand up, and Gunnar. So Jan, please jump in. No. Gunnar, Gunnar, you go first. I've spoken already uh, way too much. You go, Gunnar. I am not so sure if the observation that um, hate is in our daily lives more happening than before is really true. 
Um, actually, I don't experience that. Um, I have the impression, like in daily life, when I'm talking to people personally, um, I have the impression there are, like when I read the newspapers, I read at least here that we have less traffic accidents. Um, when I read stories, I I see a normality of unthinkable brutality in daily life in former generations that I'm not able to think about. I, I can read about it, I can know it, but I, I just not be I'm not prepared to understand the brutality of life like a hundred years ago. My my favorite ex no, I'm not going to examples. That's my impression, and I leave it here. Jan, please. Yeah, first of all, I would like to request that Isidore please gets his own camera and microphone for the next salon. Uh, he lost patience with Jeanette so badly earlier. Uh, he needs help and support, and he has a strong voice uh, as well, I'm sure. And, the second and just so thing, everyone else understands, it's yeah. the horse that keeps trying to get Jeanette to give him treats. Go on, go ahead, Jan. It, it's a new horse. The new horse is 18 years old and uh, apparently having the time of its life with Jeanette and uh, Jesse right now. Um, easy though, I'm a big fan. The second thing is uh, Chris's point with regards to shared value systems, uh, which I think we shouldn't gloss over so quickly because what uh, Chris described um, about the subway uh, in Tokyo, Japan, reminded me 100% to my experience at taxi stands in Nottingham in England at 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Jens, you will remember that too, right? Uh, we leave uh, the nightclub or the pub at 2, 2.30 when everything closes down. And 30 minutes later, we find ourselves uh, in the queue uh, in the coldest of winter people who were threatening to beat the hell out of each other are standing civilized next to each other while they wait for the taxi. And they do this because that's what you do when you're in England. You wait for the taxi, no matter how bad the person in front of you is, no matter how cold it is, and also absolutely regardless of how intoxicated you are, you wait and you, know, you stand in line patiently. And Scott brought up the point earlier that... Um, you know, the election in 2016 has taught us that rudeness basically wins. And also in that context, shared value systems, Chris, uh, your point reminded me of an email that we as parents of uh, kids who do go to my daughter's school got on the day after the Trump election. The email from my daughter's school basically started with, okay, how do we now communicate to our children who experience that the exact opposite values that they are being taught in school lead to success in real life right so uh thankfully we are really lucky this is a really really thoughtful school and they immediately addressed this or tried to as best as they could but i think chris's point is important with regards to uh, what do we want to subscribe to and how can we um live uh, next to each other and make life also more livable in the future again well, and, and let me on that point of, of the kind of social harmony that I think you're trying to evoke, you know, to stitch together something that Michael brought up that built upon David's remarks around anxiety and rudeness, but in particular, young people. And, you know, it's a shame that Murley is not able to be with us this week because he's in transit at the moment. But, you know, Michael raised an interesting point about the trauma that we all experienced as a result of the pandemic 
and that we take for granted that it was particularly difficult on young people, right? Especially young people who are entering adolescence, who are entering puberty, a very social point of their lives in which they're then forced to be at home and forced to be out of school. And I think we both underestimate how traumatic it was for these kids, how it, it will shape their entire life experience. But to go back to this larger notion of renegotiating social norms, every young generation wants to renegotiate social norms, right? They're not always successful, but there is a natural rebellion against your parents and your parents' generation. But I suspect that the nature of this current rebellion is going to be much larger and much more contentious because of the trauma that these kids have experienced and, and the feeling that they are disconnected from the world that preceded the pandemic and do not necessarily see a role for themselves in the new world that we now find ourselves in. And it gets to David's point about the perception of rudeness amongst young people, that maybe that rudeness is also an expression of them not feeling that they're part of society, of not seeing a, a way for them to be part of society. And certainly here in Canada, the housing crisis means that when I say young people, I mean people under the age of 35, because all the folks I know in their 20s and young 30s are absolutely screwed when it comes to housing, right? The rent is ludicrous. They have absolutely no hope of buying property. So I think there is a kind of rebellion baked into the rudeness uh, uh, pandemic that is separate from what we've been talking about in terms of the presidential politics and the top-down politics of rudeness, but a kind of youth rebellion of fuck it. We don't see a role for ourselves in your world. So we are going to have our own rebellion or renegotiation of social norms. Again, I, I'm saying this as a geezer, as someone who's old and, and is in my own way disconnected, but I think it's another trend or tendency we should be looking towards. So Scott, please uh, uh, continue our, our very uh, fascinating and uh, complicated conversation. Well, to, to your point, around young people not feeling their place or that they have a place in society. And also when Jan spoke about the, the note from the school and such, um, uh, I, it, it, it ha I have to think that there's a certain um, classism angle on this as well too. Uh, not to be critical of you, Jan, I think you're great. No, please, uh, absolutely, but, absolutely, 100%, yeah. But, but there were mentions earlier about hearing other voices, right? And not and, and what are those other voices saying? And those who don't feel they have a place and a lot of the discontent. I've been reading a great book called Cased and it's been, it's been really opening my eyes to sort of a lot of the structures in, you know, American society that sort of create these levels potentially of these case levels and such. Um, and so it's just fascinating to to listen to this and sort of it goes back to that question of universalism versus relativism, relativism, right, uh, on this. And, and is there a classist angle on rudeness that, you know, that we are biased, an unconscious bias that we all carry with us? Because um, there were a whole bunch of people who thought that behavior in 2016 was just fine. Gunnar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still, uh, please somebody explain to me the beyond social media where people go mad, um, but maybe just certain people go mad. 
how in daily life people get ruder than they were before. I, I just I just struggle. Maybe because I'm in Hamburg, but the Hamburg people, Jan knows. Yeah, not they are the, not they're, they're not necessarily yeah, the warmest and they're, the they're not rude, I, but they are not I friendly either. <laughs> No, gonna, gonna, gonna. Before you, before you joined, Michael kindly, uh, you know, shared some insights with us from uh, the retail space, right? Uh, where it seems that re workers in retail are uh, facing uh, increasingly outrageous demands or are addressed in, in, in increasingly outrageous and offensive ways. I think uh, you know, cab drivers or Uber drivers uh, face similar uh, experiences, and I heard that. Um, Many restaurants here uh, in New York apparently have problems even finding staff. My local Italian, for example, uh, has now eliminated an additional day of service in a week because they cannot find sufficient waiters in order to wait the tables in a restaurant because the patrons, and you know, I go there, I'm very nice, everyone else is, are too rude to the waiters. And, and that is just, just think of it. People stop applying for work because they get offended. And before yes, but... we throw to Jens, Gunnar, let, let me identify something you said and, and, and give you a chance to sort of respond. While this isn't on social media, social media is where the video of the person being rude is posted. So there is, I think, an awareness that we're all living on a stage. And if you start performing, start acting badly you could get your 15 minutes. Do, do you think that's a factor at all, Gunnar, in terms of the the crossover between yeah. social media and reality? I, I, I see that there's a toxic portion um, in our life that can intoxicate us and, and kind of spread. But concerning social media, I, I get more and more the impression that we're not participating, but more consuming. And where we are interacting, we are in closed circles where shouting is not accepted in a way it used to be when we were just on Facebook. So when you are in your in your um, Discord, when you're in your WhatsApp group and you're starting to bully around, then others will get up and, and tell you something. Um, so I, I think it really depends. And I don't have the experience. I just see that people all over history were rude and bad and whatever. And especially in our times, we we are way beyond the level of physical violence that other generations had. So maybe, even maybe because we are able to articulate ourselves more, we have a higher expectancy towards what other people tell us. And uh, so we just see rudeness sometimes in minor things other generations would not even have thought of. And then us being the old ones complaining about young ones trying to find their way and to, you know, grab their space and claim their space in life. I, I just think that's normal. And it, I, I don't usually don't see it as rude. I'm, I'm in most cases, I think it's, it's just, um, yeah, they are trying to live their lives. Right on. Now, Jens, uh, I, you joined us a little late, but I'm curious to hear your kind of thoughts on where this discussion is evolving. Yeah. First of all, sorry for being late, um, but I, I, I can support Gunnar's point of view. Um, I, I don't think that rudeness changed or the people changed in the last centuries. So I believe people in New York 200 years ago 
were as rude as now. But what changed is we are nowadays, I mean, 200 years ago, there were almost no media. Nowadays, we are exposed to media. Every second we are on the media, on the phone, on mobile, TVs, on radio and all that. And what, what is media doing? They're always pushing up the bad news. People love bad news. And so what, uh, what Gunnar said, it's like an, uh, I don't know what it's called, a, a self, um, self-fulfilling um, prophecy. Uh, right, exactly. And it's a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle. It's exactly a vicious circle. So I don't believe that people change that much. Um, we see much more than people a couple of years ago, centuries ago. Yes, we see more. And because we see more, we believe, oh, the world is so bad. But the world has ever been bad. So. Uh, what's that French saying? The more things change, the more things stay the same. And, of course, the balance in media was always the news is bad because the ads are good, right? You want the news to induce anxiety so that the advertisements alleviate that anxiety, and then you buy the product in order to feel good. Now, Jan and Gunnar both have their hands up. And because we're running out of time, this is where I'll offer to people like Andrea or Chris or Jeanette an opportunity to speak a second time. But Jan, please. Yeah, so... um... You know, I want to briefly uh, also maybe flip the perspective and look at uh, the question or examine the question whether rudeness could possibly even be a tool, right? Could rudeness be, you know, useful in a given circumstance? And I'll I'll give you an example here where I um, experienced rudeness and then thought, hey, actually, that was a calculated move that I could get behind. Uh, in an agency that I worked with, uh, with Andrea at one point, I found myself in a senior executive meeting. Yeah. And during that meeting, the chief strategy officer needed to walk past me. And as she walked past me, she stepped onto my feet. She really stepped onto my feet so that it hurt. I looked at her, she looked at me, and then she changed her gaze and walked on. She stepped on my feet, but did not say that she's sorry. Right, which is so rude, isn't it? And I asked myself afterwards, what is this? Who does she think she is, right? And then I noticed, hey, wait a minute, the same woman for the last 12 months has been basically advocating for uh, you know, equity in the workspace for women's rights and so on and so on. And she is probably just now letting me experience how women have been treated and stepped on literally for decades, right? I am not necessarily in alignment with her way of showing me because I was not deserving in that case, but maybe that rudeness in her case was justifiable. I don't know, and I don't want to take sides here. I heard a similar sentiment once from a, a guru who um, you know, you would expect is always the Zen person who is always balanced, but no, this guru said, yeah, you know, if necessary, he raises his voice and is rude intentionally in order to, you know, create a reaction if he can't get that otherwise. I, I mean, you just perfectly articulated the Canadian paradox where Canadians think that they're all polite. But if you want to get anything done in Canada, you kind of got to be rude. Google, please. <laughs> yeah, I, first of all, I, I think that's a fascinating story you just said. I, I would like to delve deeper, but uh, not. we don't have the time. I want to say that 
in my personal life, rudeness especially happens when I'm together with people and I'm, I have to communicate with people who are by organizations that are my whatever service providers or so on are put into boxes that limit their ability to act. So they might not know what's happening or they are restrained in their allowed reactions. And in that case, I mean, I'm on eye level with a human being. This human being might be lying to me or might not know that this human being is lying. But this human being, in that case, being a human being with a human being, the second one being me, does have to expect some kind of reaction if, uh, what is the word? It's kind of a structural violence is being put on me. Yeah. So, I mean... So that that raises an interesting point. And let me ask this of you, Gunnar, but I'm curious if anyone else wants to weigh hmm. in. Can an organization be rude? Can an individual be rude to an organization? Go ahead, Gunnar. Yes, of course. I think that's there's no way of explaining. Uh, that, that is just obvious. Mm -hmm. I think and, many will join, so I will not say what the others are going to say. And and I also, you know, conscious on time, the other thing I kind of want to throw out there for people to consider and chime in before we end is what are the kind of skills required to navigate this world? Like if we started our conversation by kind of empathizing with retail workers and service workers, and then acknowledging that all of us potentially have to navigate this world, what are the kind of skill sets? What are the kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, tactics or aesthetics that help us deal with this kind of relativistic concept of, of rudeness versus civility. So we got Chris and then Andrea. Go ahead, Chris. I'm going to answer the question. I met my hand went up earlier. Can organizations be? That's okay. You can speak rude. to anything that has come up so far in the first. No, minutes. and I think that I think that organizations try really hard, and my heart goes out to them because it's difficult to establish sort of a shared set of of rules. And I think increasingly, um, one of the things I'm seeing with sort of clients is they meetings. I'm. Are we going till noon? Is noon the time? Yes. Because organizations will have every meeting is supposed to finish at 10 to to give people 10 minutes to get to their next meeting so it's actually rude or against norms to go over time so i think organizations try to do it i think organizations are in a, are in a place to sort of impose that on people it may not be appreciated and people may see it as constraining right but this is a little bit of it's just sort of that shared context that i kind of i can't help but keep coming back to mm -hmm. andrea you know, I'm just thinking about how, like, if someone's rude and then somebody replies in rudeness, it kind of just keeps escalating. And I think, I can't remember who said it earlier. It's like, once you unpack why that person had acted the way they did in the first place, anxiety or whatever, you can de-escalate it and you can take them down a notch. So to the point Jan made, I know who you're talking about, and I believe she did it intentionally, and she was no intention of, of apologizing because that's just her way. But if you had escalated it, she would have met in kind. So. It's just one of those things you have to be able to step back and be like, all right, you know, be the bigger person and not buy into what they're selling, really. Well, Which I am. Thank you. Yes, yeah. you are the bigger person. Yeah, <laughs> and it very much evokes David's earlier point about rudeness as a power play, yeah. as a tactic within larger politics. Good. Oh, that was her jam. <laughs> um, I know hockey is a good, great game in your continent. And hockey teams or ice hockey teams, they have the enforcers. 
And the question is, how do I relate with myself on what I do or what I don't do? I will never, never act as an enforcer for a company. I, I can make a bold statement for myself when I think things are getting unfair because I'm not a weak, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to play the weak part. I have to be responsible with everything I do, but I'm not going to be the enforcer. And I don't like to play for companies that are enforcers. My favorite book concerning this is actually The Heart of Darkness of Conrad, which has been the kind of the literary uh, playbook by which um, Apocalypse Now was written. And here there's the young executive and the young executive sees that the best executive in this company is just totally out of norm and he's so far out of norm by just killing people and putting hats on stakes and whatever um, that he's finally being taken off but he has just transgressed so many lines that this one executive the young one has really has to think where have i gone where have i got what what are my judgments how will i what will i do in the future and so i think we always have to ask ourselves what are the lines that, that we personally put to ourselves in specific situations and in the organizations that we act in to, you know, when we look back, say, it's been quite fair and maybe I did mistakes, but I kind of stuck to my ideas of what a good life could be. Mm -hmm. and, and you also kind of raise, for me at least, the appeal. I would love to see Heart of Darkness adapted to a Silicon Valley tech company, right? Instead of the kind Absolutely. of Vietnam War... Wouldn't that, I, I mean, again, I, 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 that would be riveting drama. Now, David, I assume uh, that Lily uh, uh, just came in, which is why you were letting her out to go pee in the backyard. But That's you've got good. your hand up and uh, oh. uh, perhaps you want to help us close off by answering some of the threads that are open or offering any closing thoughts. I was going to build on the concept that Andrea introduced, I think, about the vicious circle and it made me think about you know, positive feedback loops, deviation, amplifying mutual causal processes in um, in engineering and 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 behavior, and um, and also connect that to the concept of negative asymmetry bias, which is given the choice of remembering a positive thing or a negative thing, it seems somewhat universal that people will choose the negative thing. And the negative thing will be the mnemonic has the greater mnemonic power. So we have a we have a situation where we're linking that uh, that negative asymmetry bias to a deviation amplifying mutual causal process, and there might be both uh, an explanation for and a potential solution for the uh, the pandemic of rudeness that you've talked, led us into conversing, Jess. Well, I think that's an excellent point to end on. Uh, I thank you all for participating in what I think has been uh, a really interesting discussion. Like most of our discussions is kind of not ending. It more opens up future threads. Um, 
this is our last formal salon for 2023. We're going to do some informal ones in December that are a little different, a little more experimental. And we're also doing a podcast, which uh, is also kind of spontaneous and impromptu, which for those of you who are not in our signal group, this is incentive to join our signal group because that's how you can participate in the podcast. Um, but again, I thank you all. It's been very polite discussion, very civil, respectful discussion. Uh, we'll have a little bit on it in the Gazette on Thursday, but otherwise I wish the Americans here happy Thanksgiving and the non-Americans uh, will hopefully reconnect in the weeks to come. So thanks everybody and hope to see you all soon. The German will also have a happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Yes, bye. Thank you everyone. <laughs>